increment 119. Therefore, having a great archpriest, part 5, and we're going to be going to Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15, and looking all the way through 5-3, but I'm going to be bobbing and weaving a little bit on this one. We're going to be going back and forth within Hebrews, back and forth within Hebrews, in a kind of a zigzag motion to see if we can mix things up a little bit and let the Holy Spirit put them in a proper order about just what we have in having a great archpriest. In our last increment, we gave kind of a historical background to Hebrews and to the having of a great archpriest and how great of a privilege it is. And so we will continue today in what I will call the logical continuity of Hebrews from 4.15 onward, but also, again, looking at other passages in Hebrews. So, Father, we're entertaining quite an endeavor here today, and I do not view it as a humanly possible thing to manifest your Son, and so we are utterly dependent upon you and ask your assistance through the Holy Spirit to manifest your Son, Jesus Christ, through this message today. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have an archpriest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tested in every way as we are, yet without sin. We do not, it says, have an archpriest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses like they do. They may have an archpriest, that is, those who are beckoning us to come back. Imagine yourself as a recipient of this epistle or this homily. Those who are beckoning you to come back are suggesting you've cut yourself off from having an archpriest. You've cut yourself off from the privilege of him offering an expiation for you on the day of Yom Kippur, on Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, you've cut yourself off from the people of God, from God himself. But the answer is we do not have an archpriest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses like you do. You you have an archpriest who, in fact, cannot sympathize with our weaknesses because I'm going to show you The word sympathize here means more than just feel sorry for. In fact, it means more than just have feelings with. But it means also to provide something much more. Our archpriest sympathizes with our weakness. It's true. The word sympathize is this word, S-U-M-P-A-T-H. E-O, sum, together with, patheo, to suffer or to experience, here, more, to suffer. This little root word, patheo, and words like it in that word group are key in Hebrews, having to do with suffering. And so it's true that Jesus suffers with us, having suffered for us, 
But sympathize means a little more than meets the eye. It means more than our word to sympathize or to feel sympathy for. It carries with it the intention of acting to provide assistance. In fact, it means in part to provide real assistance and help. Gareth Lee Cockerell, who also wrote a pretty good commentary on Hebrews, tells us that the Greek word for sympathize in the phrase to sympathize with our weaknesses often denotes a bond stronger than the English to sympathize. And this is what he writes, and I thought it would be worth reproducing a short paragraph of his from his Hebrews commentary. Quote, this is a sympathy that leads to active assistance, he says. It finds expression and is embodied in the grace of forgiveness and victory over temptation that this high priest ministers to those who come to God through him. His sympathetic help empowers us in the midst of those inherent human limitations that make us vulnerable to temptation, here called our weaknesses. The Aaronic high priest, remember when I say the word Aaronic, I'm speaking of Aaron and the order of Levitical priesthood that proceeded with him. Levitical from Levi, his grandson. So where these two terms can be used for the old order of priests that are dealt with in the book of Hebrews, or the homily here, as opposed to our great archpriest, Jesus, who we will learn is a priest through the age, not just to the end of an earthly life, but through the age, after the order of, or simply like Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, as we're going to see. So he says, in closing off his paragraph, the Aaronic our high priest, on the other hand, was able only to deal gently with sinners, to put up with and excuse their sin, because he was subjected to weakness and thus sinful himself. So there's a big difference between every archpriest spoken of, as we're going to see in Hebrews 5, and this great archpriest who's passed through the heavens. He was tested like all of us, in every possible way, enduring all of the spectrum of human experience under sin, but without sin. And so, unlike the priests of the Old Testament, they were able to deal gently with people who brought their offerings because they, too, had testing that resulted in their own sins. So they couldn't be show disgust at somebody who came having committed a sin as a result of sensuality or some other thing. So, but they could only be sympathetic because of their own sinful weakness. Jesus is sympathetic in that he can assist us in our weaknesses, having passed through everything we pass through and yet without sin. Big difference there. And so we're dealing with the kind of thing like someone saying, you don't even have an archpriest, we say, not only do we have an archpriest, but ours is much better than yours, kind of a thing. 
even though it, it's not down on that petty level. William L. Lane, whose commentary I really cherish, concurs with Cockerell, C-O-C-K-E-R-I-L-L, -L, incidentally, Gareth Lee Cockerell. William L. Lane concurs, and he writes simply, the special nuance of sympathesi extends beyond the sharing of feelings, i.e. compassion. It always includes the element of active help. Jesus' capacity, therefore, to be sympathetic high priest or archpriest derives from his having experienced the full range of the experience of human beings under sin, only without sin and without the result of sin in his unique case. Jesus has the capacity and indeed the experience of not only suffering with us as one who endured human suffering and the full range of it, but also he has the power to extend mercy as our merciful high priest and he has power to also extend help to the helpless. This verse has a direct continuity all the way from Hebrews 2.17, again exegetical archery, the arrow fired back into 2.17 and back from 2.17 to 4.15, for when he was just introducing the topic in Hebrews 2.17, the PT says, for the same reason, now he means there the same reason that it was fitting that he may be made perfect through suffering back in 2.10, for the same reason he was bound to become like his siblings in every way. Now, we're going to learn that there's an exception to that, except for sin, but that only comes where? In 4.15, except for sin. In order to be a merciful and faithful archpriest in things pertaining to God, to make expiation slash propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself has suffered and was tempted while being tested, he is able to help those who are being tempted while being tested. Now notice in 2.18 that Jesus is able to help those who are being tempted while they're being tested. Now every time we're tested or brought through a trial, there's usually associated with that a temptation. A temptation to resort to something that might help us endure the test, but the resorting is to something sinful, for example, something that would cause misery to others, but relief to us, for example. So tests, and there are multitudes of tests in this life, usually involve temptation because the tempter likes to take advantage of us in our weaknesses. Sometimes he takes advantage of us in our victories, too. So be careful to remain cautious and alert and circumspect when you've just attained a great victory or a great liberation. Just watch out. Keep watching. Keep on guard. There's never a moment in this life when we're not on guard. So Jesus is able to help those who are being tempted while being tested. 
It's of course famous how he was tested in the wilderness as the Exodus generation was tested, only he did went, underwent the test without sin, even though he was tempted because in his humanity he was temptable. In his divinity he was impeccable and he remained impeccable in his humanity through testing. No other archpriest can have that. No, one, no other archpriest has that kind of qualification. So this is precisely the description of the situation of the first recipients of the letter to the Hebrews. They were being tested, and while being tested, they were being tempted to resort to a religious compromise. They were being tested, and during this test, they were being tempted to return to the temple sacrifices offered by the priests and the archpriest of the Aaronic order. Hebrews itself, in toto, Hebrews the homily itself, is the help that is sent by Jesus, who is able to help those who are under that temptation. God has sent Hebrews, Jesus has sent Hebrews to us in our time to help, to assist and support us during a time of specific testing, trial, and temptation. That Jesus, as our merciful and faithful archpriest, is able to help, that's a key word there too, that he's able to help, and that's B O E. T-H-A-T-E-S-A-I, Boethesai, that he's able to help. Here's the English transliteration. Boethesai, that he's able to help is significant because the Aaronic priests were not able to do that, though they could deal gently with sinners. That was as far as it went. Being sinners themselves, they were able to deal gently with and moderate their emotions over the sinners that came to them with their offerings. Being sinners themselves. And again, this is significant because... This goes to Jesus' humanity, but also to his divinity. For he himself is the Lord, Kurios. He is the Lord who is my helper. And that goes all the way up into Hebrews 13.6. Same word, only in a noun form. B-O-E-T-H-O-S. Boethos. If you were going to write a Christian novel or a novel with a Christian analogy to it or a Christian metaphor behind it, you could call your hero Boethos. And so he is my helper in Hebrews 13.6, which is a citation from Psalm 118.6 or the Septuagint 117.6. We have a great archpriest who is both man and God. And we could say to those that are beckoning us back to the old temple system, and you don't. We have a great archpriest who is both man and 
God. And you do, you just don't know it yet. Is more like it. He's the eternal son who became like us in every way except for our sin in order to make us like he is in every way except for his divinity. When we see him, we shall be like him. The archpriests of the Aaronic order, once again, and even the one that was in power in Jerusalem at the time of the writing of Hebrews and the reception of this letter may well have been one who was able to sympathize in that way. I'm sure there were other archpriests who didn't really sympathize with the people that brought their offerings and were disgusted at their sinfulness because of their self-righteousness. Who knows? Human beings are human beings. We're prone to hypocrisy, self-righteousness. We're prone to atomize ourselves into little groups and group biases against one another. But they may well have been have had a, an archpriest at the time, say A.D. 67 or 68, who was able to sympathize with them as he should. Already then, the readers are being assured that not only do they have an archpriest in Jesus, the Son of God, but theirs is actually a superior archpriest who can do what no priests of the former order could do. So I said I was going to bob and weave back and forth in this epistle. Let's go to 5.1. It says, Every archpriest, archierius, archierius, and that's emphasize that little phrase, every archpriest. He's now speaking about every archpriest of the Aaronic order or the Levitical order of priests. Every archpriest... Selected from human beings is appointed to act on behalf of human beings in things that pertain to God. For example, to offer both gifts and offerings for sins. That's really the most the primary duty of every archpriest of the Levitical and the Aaronic order. And who is able, verse 2, to deal gently with the ignorant. That is, people who come to them with their offerings who, are, who have sinned in ignorance. And those who are led astray. They're always being led astray, said God, about the Exodus generation. Since he himself experiences weaknesses or weakness in many ways. This is not talking about Jesus per se. It's talking about every archpriest selected from human beings is appointed to act in behalf of human beings and things that pertain to God. For example, the prime example, to offer both gifts and offerings for sins and who's able to deal gently with the ignorant and those who are led astray since he himself experiences weakness in many ways. That's every archpriest. But we're dealing with every archpriest versus the great archpriest Jesus, the Son of God, whom we have. So that means that the archpriests of the Aaronic order were able to deal gently with those who were led astray simply because they themselves as archpriests were subject to the same weaknesses and because they too sinned in the same ways. 
But Jesus' sympathy is of a sinless Son of God, in contrast. Jesus' sympathy is of a sinless Son of God who was nevertheless tested in every way as we are, yet without sin. He is able to do much more than just relate to us as sinner to sinner. He doesn't relate to us as sinner to sinner. He relates to us as one who's been tested just like we are and knows the feeling of it, and yet who didn't sin, thank God. He's able to help us in our weakness and even fortify us in our temptation. The Old Testament priests couldn't do that. The Aaronic Order couldn't do that. Jesus can actually fortify us in our temptations. So let's keep coming to the throne of grace. That's the logical sequence here, the logical continuity. That's why 4.16 says, backing up slightly, therefore let's approach without spokenness the throne of grace. That is with boldness to request whatever we need so that we may take hold of mercy, that is from the merciful high priest or archpriest, and find grace for timely help. The author has been leading his readers into a logical reasoning process, be reasonable, that shows that not only do they have a great archpriest, but they have a far superior archpriest than their peers or contemporaries who are charging them with not having an archpriest. The author answers for them, okay, we don't have an archpriest who can't sympathize. You see, this whole passage has to be interpreted in the light of a conversation, not just out of the blue, not just of, out of a vacuum. He's replying to a charge that these believers had been receiving. So his answer is, yeah, we don't. Okay, we don't have an archpriest. But then he continues and says, we don't have an archpriest who can't sympathize with our weakness, but one who can actually fortify and assist us in temptations. That's a better one than you got. Now, he's not being that way. He's not being facetious like I might be, but he's, he is saying that in essence. He's saying, we do. Don't tell me I don't have an archpriest. Don't tell me our little church doesn't have an archpriest because we've dissociated ourselves from the temple that Jesus cleansed and predicted the end of. We do have an archpriest who has been tested in every way like we are and yet without sin. You don't have that priest. Well, you do. You just don't know it yet. So this is to say gently and with courtesy, you have an archpriest who may be able to deal gently with you because he himself has sinned. But we have an archpriest who can both deal gently with us and assist and empower us with his own strength and perseverance through the Holy Spirit whom he sends to us and gives us. In our weakness, we are made strong as 
2 Corinthians 12, 7 to 10 taught Paul because it is then that the power of Christ is perfected in us, completed in us. Our great archpriest is able to strengthen us in his grace. The Aaronic archpriest could not do that. This is emblematic of the line of reasoning that's followed in Hebrews. Let's look at it again and go slightly further. Hebrews 5. Now, maybe when you listen to this, you'll have the notes in front of you. They don't always correlate with the spoken, but sometimes they do. And often I do go off script to the chagrin of some and the delight of others. But Hebrews 5.1, every archpriest selected from human beings is appointed to act on behalf of human beings in things that pertain to God. For example, I put in brackets, to offer both gifts and offerings for sins. And who is able to deal gently, verse 20, verse 2 rather, and is able to deal gently. You'll notice that translation. I'll explain it a little bit down the road. He's able to do, deal ex- gently with the ignorant and those who are led astray. Since he himself experiences weakness in many ways. Now, again, we're talking about every archpriest of the Aaronic order. We're not talking about Jesus, the great archpriest, because look at verse 3. And because of this weakness, just as he offers sacrifices for the sins of the people, he must also do so for himself. Remember Leviticus 16, 23, and 24, the archpriest had to offer sacrifices for himself and his family as well as for the people of Israel. We also saw that in Hebrews 9-7. So there's a contrast being drawn here between every archpriest and our unique archpriest. Every archpriest means all the archpriests of the Aaronic order. They are all qualified, as it were, to deal gently with those who come with their sin offerings because they themselves, these Aaronic priests of the Levitical order, they themselves have experienced the kind of weakness that leads to being led astray and to sins of ignorance. The Old Testament order did not have sacrifice for willful or willing sins, but only for sins of ignorance. We'll be getting into that sometime down the road. Every archpriest of that order, then, has to offer sacrifices not only for the sins of the people, but for his own sins also. Let me read that again in Leviticus 16, 23 to 24, where that concept comes from. And Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of the congregation and shall put off the linen garments which he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. And he shall wash his flesh with water in the holy place, in the laver, and put put on his garments and come forth and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make an atonement for himself and for the people. Again, in Hebrews 9, 7, we're bobbing and weaving, going back and forth here. 
But into the second, the high priest enters alone once a year. That's also from Leviticus 16, this time in verse 17. Not without blood to offer in behalf of himself and for the sins committed in ignorance by the people. Our great archpriest did not have to offer blood in behalf of himself and for the sins of the people, for he knew no sin. He proved himself to be without sin, Hebrews 4.15, by being tested in every way as every human being is. He experienced, in other words, the full range of the human condition under sin, except for sin. That is, except for committing it, knowing it by commission or by omission. He became like us in every way except for sin. He who knew no sin was made to be sin for us so that we would be made the righteousness of God in him. A stunning and shocking declaration in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Nor did Jesus offer the blood of others, that is, sacrificial animals. He himself was the sacrifice, that is, the Lamb of God, and through his own blood, he secured perpetual redemption. Hebrews 9.12. We may add that he not only offered himself as an atonement for the sins of the people of Israel, but for the sins of the whole world. John, writing to Jewish friends, said, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only but for the sins of the whole world in 1 John 2, 1 and 2. So every archpriest in the Levitical order kept standing as they served the altar. Speaking, therefore, of every priest, not just every archpriest, but every priest, there's a connection, therefore, between Hebrews 5, 1 and 5. 10.11. Bobbing and weaving, let's weave over to Hebrews 10.11, which says, Every priest, meaning again after the order of Aaron, stands daily to render service, offering often the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this one, there's the contrast, but this one, this man, this great archpriest Jesus, the Son of God, who passed through the heavens and through the torn veil of his flesh into the very presence, in the immediate presence of the majesty and power of his Father, and is seated there, crowned as a king and as a priest, a great archpriest. So again, here it is. Every priest, after the order of Aaron, stands, stands, keeps standing, daily to offer service, offering the same sacrifices often that can never take away sins. But this one, our great archpriest, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, all the sins of all humanity for all time, that is, sat down 
at the right side of God. That's dramatic. That's emphatic. That's the message I've been proclaiming in this general Pittsburgh area for 42 years. And here, again, is the theme first introduced in Hebrews 1.3. Having made purification for sins. Here we understand what those sins are. The sins of all time. Of all people for all time. Having made purification for sins. He is now seated at the right hand of the Father. So again, the theme first introduced in Hebrews 1.3 and traversing throughout this homily lands again in Hebrews 10.11 and 12. And once again, the archpriest theme is connected to the theme of Jesus as the reigning king. This is the year of the great king. In Hebrews 10.13. So if you follow 10, 11, and 12 into 13 of Hebrews, where Psalm 110.1, Septuagint 109.1, is alluded to again. For after saying, quote, but this one, our great archpriest, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right side of God, he then says in verse 13, from then on, he is waiting until his enemies are made his footrest. This in turn goes back to Hebrews 1.13. Told you we're going to bob and weave, bob and weave, which quotes Psalm 110.1, 113 of Hebrews, which quotes again Psalm 110.1, Septuagint 109.1, in connection with Jesus' superiority to the angels this time. His superiority to the angels. Remember, we've gone from the superiority of the angels to the superiority of Mo over Moses, now to the superiority of Jesus over Aaron. So this goes back to Hebrews 1.13. 10.13 goes back to 1.13 in connection with Jesus' superiority to the angels. For there it says in Hebrews 1.13 and 14, and to which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footrest for your feet. The answer is to none of the angels did he ever say that, including Gabriel, including Michael, including Uriel, including Raphael, including adversary. And then in verse 14 he continues, Aren't all the angels ministering spirits sent for service and support of those who are destined to inherit salvation? And the answer is yes, they are. If we put these verses together with Hebrews 4.15, 4, 4, that Jesus assists us in our weaknesses, we can assume that he can even send angels to serve and support us, or that he can provide assistance by strengthening us with his own grace directly in 2 Timothy 2.1, or by the Spirit of grace in Hebrews 10.29, who pours power into us in Philippians 4.13. For I can do all things through him who keeps pouring the power into me, said Paul, compared also with Ephesians 3.16. The Holy Spirit pours strength into our inner person when we're weak and embattled. Anybody weak out there? Anybody embattled? I am. I'm weak. I'm embattled most of the time in my life. 
Now, I'm going to bob and weave into another a little analogy. Let's take this to the playground. Let's imagine we're kids. A bully comes up to a kid and says, you and your family don't have an archpriest like me and my family does. A crowd of sycophants with the bully begin to mock and taunt the child. Bullies always have to be surrounded by a crowd of sycophants. So the kid comes home dejected because he had no defense for the bully's accusation. He tells his dad what happened on the playground. The dad says, well, let me tell you about our great arch priest. And he reads and explains Hebrews. The kid returns to school the next day. The bully approaches again with the same accusation. This time, the kid takes the bully's head clean off, proverbially speaking, of course. The kid takes the bully's proverbial head off, saying, We have an archpriest, all right, and as good and great as yours might be, ours is infinitely greater. Oh, and he's yours too. (laughs) You just don't know it yet. So the kid makes a great argument. Why? Because his great arch priest has empowered him to do so. In this case, Hebrews was a big part of that empowerment, but not without the spirit. Now let's bring it back. Let's weave, let's bob back, weave back to Hebrews 5.1. Every arch priest Remember that word, archpriest, archieros, which motivates me to translate it arch instead of high priest, A-R-C-H-I, no dot over the iota, E-R-E-U-S, archieros. Archpriest. Every archpriest selected from human beings is appointed to act on behalf of human beings in things that pertain to God. For example, now underline this part of the verse, to offer both gifts and offerings for sins. That's his main job. Again, this goes back to Hebrews 2.17. For the same reason, he was bound to become like his siblings in every way in order to be a merciful and faithful archpriest in things pertaining to God. Note the connection, 5.1 to 2.17, to make expiation, propitiation for the sins of the people. This phrase, to make expiation, propitiation for the sins of the people, correlates with offering both gifts and offerings for sins. So there's a wonderful connection between Hebrews 2.17 and 5.1. So I want to make a few points before we close. Increment. 119, which also reminds me of a wonderful psalm, 119. It has 22 increments to it, corresponding to the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Psalm 119, great psalm to read every once in a while. But here we go, a few points. First, every archpriest called to make expiation for the sins of the people that is, to offer both gifts and offerings for sins. Regarding that, 
the archpriests of Aaron's order made expiation for the sins of the people by offering the blood of sacrificial animals. Expiation was made for the sins of the people once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, by the Aaronic archpriests. Jesus, our great archpriest, on the other hand, made expiation for the sins of the world once and for all time through his own blood. That's the first observation. Second observation, every archpriest has to be able to deal gently with the ignorant and those who are led astray since he himself experiences weakness in many ways. Hebrews 5.2. To deal gently is the word metriopatheo, M-E-T-R-I-O. And here's our word again, patheo, which comes from a word group having to do with suffer or suffering. Metriopatheo. And to, so to deal gently is a translation of metriopatheo means he's able to moderate his feelings. Not like a stoic who wants to exterminate his feelings. The priest is to moderate his feelings or control his emotions and therefore to deal reasonably and not to show disgust at those whose sensuality and human weakness led them to sin. The same idea sort of pertains in Galatians 6, 1 and 2. If you're going to go restore a friend who has been overtaken by sin, take care for yourself so that you're not also tempted, meaning you're not tempted to view them from self-righteousness and the hypocrisy of judgmentalism. The priest has to be that way. Every archpriest, not to show disgust, he's to moderate his feelings. He might even be shocked by some of the sins that are being expiated, but he can't show that. It's kind of an even-temperedness that a good psychiatrist would have to use probably, but metriopatheo differs from the stoic so-called virtue, and it's not a virtue, of apathia, which we get the word apathy from, which is the eradication of feelings and emotions. Jesus fulfills the metriopatheo idea in that he moderates his emotions also. But he adds the ability to support and assist the weak. Okay, third observation. As Hebrews 5.2 says, every archpriest has to be able to deal gently with the ignorant and those who are led astray, since he himself experiences weakness in many ways. To experience weakness in many, any many ways is the translation of the Greek verb perikamai, P-E-R-I-K-E-I-M-A-I, perikamai. And it means literally to be encompassed with or surrounded by weaknesses. It's used metaphorically in Hebrews 12.1 to depict Christians as contenders in a contest in a stadium 
surrounded by a great cloud of spectators. Surrounded is the word parakemai. They're the witnesses or the faith heroes of Hebrews 11. Surrounding us. Surrounded by weaknesses means that we experience weakness in many ways. The priest also experiences weaknesses in many ways. Jesus indeed experienced weaknesses in every way, but not resulting in sin. He endured the full range of human suffering. In fact, he went so far as to be crucified in weakness, but now he lives by the power of God. And in that power of God, 2 Corinthians 13, 4, he's able to actually provide assistance to us when we're being tested and tempted. And he can fortify us against sin. So do we resist sin? Yes. But how? Through being fortified by our great archpriest. So Jesus indeed experienced weaknesses of all kinds as he endured the full range of human suffering. However, he experienced weakness and was even crucified in weakness without his weakness resulting in sin. Fourth and finally, and I'll close with this for today's increment. Hebrews 5.3 And because of this weakness... Just as he, speaking there again of every archpriest, offers sacrifices for the sins of the people, here's the key point I've made many times before, he must also do so, do so for himself. This is talking about every priest under the, the Aaronic or the Levitical order of priests. They had to offer sacrifices for their own sins. That distinguishes our great archpriest from them by infinity, because he knew no sin, and therefore in his offering for the sins of not only the people, but the world, he did not offer a sacrifice for himself. He himself was the sacrifice, and he knew no sin. But he became sin, meaning he became the sin offering, so that we would be made the righteousness of God in him. It's all by a divine act, not by a human act. And not by an act of human believing either. By an act of divine, unconditional grace. And justice surpassing love. Rooted in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus as our great archpriest knew all kinds of human weakness. But did not sin like every archpriest of the Levitical order. Therefore... His offer of one sacrifice or his offering or one sacrifice for all sins for all time was not done for himself and not even for the sins of the people of Israel only. Rather, his offering was himself as one who knew no sin and this self-offering was for the sins of all the people in all the world over all time. Our archpriest, Jesus, the Son of God who passed through the heavens, has universally saving significance. And his once and for all people for all time has a universally 
reconciling, rectifying, and redemptive impact. He isn't every archpriest. He is, as we'll see with more and more clarity, the great archpriest-like Melchizedek, whose name means king of righteousness. <clears throat> and remember, righteousness is God's universally saving act. Thank you, Father. Rivet these truths in our soul. Make them have more and more clarity by your Holy Spirit and by the crystal river that proceeds from the throne of the Father and the Lamb. We ask these things in his name. Amen.